Hello, and welcome to I Am Dad podcast with your fatherhood authority, Kenneth Braswell. 30 minutes of wisdom, information, resources, and nuggets to help you on your fatherhood journey. Or maybe you're just curious and want to hear some real talk about fatherhood, family, and the minds of men. Well, guess what? We got you too. Sit back, grab your pad and pen, and maybe even bring a little something to sip on. Enjoy 30 straight minutes of fatherhood, family, and fun with the fatherhood authority. Kenneth Braswell. Welcome to I Am Dad Podcast. I'm your host, Kenneth Braswell. Thank you for joining us on another um, awesome Sunday morning as we are now in season three and happy about that. And like I said last week, um, I didn't think that I was going to continue to do this thing. I thought it was going to be a fad. I have started podcasts before and blogs and all those things. And when you start looking at engagement, you kind of move away from it. And I know that it's important that when you start something that you have to stick with it in order for it to build. And so I kind of made a commitment that I wanted to do this, but I really thought it was going to fade away because everybody and their mother who has a mic and a computer is doing podcasts these days. But for this particular field of responsible fatherhood, just thought it was important to kind of build a space where we can have conversations around the subject matter. Um, that typically aren't talked about in the way that we know this work and talk about this stuff. So it's been really cool to kind of look back on the last two years and see all of the conversations that we've had with all of the folks that are in this space, either from a practitioner's point of view, a researcher's point of view, a regular person point of view, stories and narratives. It's been cool to kind of look at the body of work. Um, and today we continue that uh, with my good friend, um, that's been uh, inspiration to me um, and many things that I've done, um, a thought leader in this space. Um, and he just accomplished something that I'm gonna talk about in just a second, but this is a Baltimore native, uh, David Miller. Um, he finds himself at the intersection of peril and progress when gauging the economic and social deprivation that impacts communities of color. Miller uses his academic training and innate street skills to lead intergenerational conversations with men and boys focused on alternatives to violence, mental health, and managing anger. He's also a media, social media strategist for Fathers Incorporated, as well as a lead writer and researcher for us as well, uh, for Fathers Incorporated here in Atlanta. Um, he is passionate about creating children's books, highlighting black fathers in children's literacy. Um, historically, we know that images of black fathers in contemporary children's literature um, has been absent, and he's done a lot to plug that in, and we're going to talk about his books. But where I originally um, met David was when he was in the middle of his work with his curriculum, um, Dare to be King, What If the Prince Lives, a unique 52-week curriculum that engages adolescent black male youth around several vital domains, including anger decision-making and impulse control. But just recently, um, he completed his PhD um, in the School of Social Work at Morgan State University, where he is focused on black fatherhood and the intersection of black fathers raising daughters. Mr. Dr. Miller, how you doing, sir? Kenny Braswell, I am doing well. How you doing, man? I'm doing good. I'm doing, you know, at somebody, people all, all over the holiday, it was a really weird thing. People kept saying, yo, how you doing? Like something that happened. I was like, look, I was like, did y'all read something? Hear something? Blah, blah, blah. Right. You know, the Cat Williams talk about me too. Like, y'all, I'm, I'm right, you know, right. I'm good. And so, but my answer to them was, you know, I do what a mission-driven, passionate, 
focused people do. That's how I rest, mm -hmm. right? I may not not be working based on how you identify working, but I am in a restful place. I'm not doing yeah. anything, but my mind, you know, as Kevin Hart would say, the way my bank account works, the, main, my, the way my mind works is any idle time is wasted time. And I think that you mm. can still produce and you can still build in a, in a restful place, you know, whether that's reading a book, it doesn't have to be, you know, it doesn't have to be ratchet read in order to relax. I can read very serious stuff or listen because I'm an audible person and be relaxed. And so that's kind of how, you know, I spent the last two or three weeks. But now I'm ready to go. It's 2024, bro. And I'm ready to make some things happen. How about yourself? You know, like like you, man, um, I periodically take time off throughout the year to rest, rejuvenate, recharge the battery, pivot, um, you know, think about the work constantly like you, constantly thinking about is the work meaningful and impactful? Because I think a lot of people have gotten in the space where they just want to check boxes and be busy. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that when we look at the challenges in our community, you know, it's really time for us to start thinking about impact and outcome mm -hmm. and, and really kind of kill the the, the distractions, man, because um, folks are really struggling, man. Folk, folks, folks are really, really struggling. And particularly when I look at American, what's happening to American men, regardless of race, regardless of class, I think that um, American men are really struggling with uh, mental health. Mm -hmm. um, American men are struggling with, with, with physical health in terms of moving beyond this notion of invincibility. Like I know guys, I have a friend of mine, he hasn't been to the doctor. He hasn't seen a medical professional since he had his physical senior year of high school, 1987. Wow. Because this notion of invisibility. And so I'm, I'm really concerned with, you know, what's happening with, with, with American men, with a specific focus on men of color. But I think the challenges that American men are having um, requires, you know, us to be uh, more focused on outcomes. Man. Mm, wow. Before we get deep into this, I want to take a step back because I always start off our podcast with this particular question. And it always gives our listeners and people perspective on why people get into the space and why people do the work that they do. And that is tell me your daddy's story. So what's interesting, man, I've had an amazing um, daddy story. I currently am the full-time caregiver of my dad, Peter C. Miller Sr. He will be, he will be 85 years old uh, next week. Mm -hmm. so, it's, so, so, so my daddy's story has been very interesting. I grew up, even though I grew up in, in West Baltimore and had my own unique set of challenges um, in terms of, you know, friends going to prison at an early age, whole host of friends, um, you know, um, um, falling victim to homicides. A number of my friends um, committed suicide or OD because, you know, Baltimore has historically been known, been, been known as, as a city with large amounts of heroin. A couple of my friends, good number of my friends OD'd on heroin when I was, you know, 19, 20 years of age. I think that what insulated me from all that was going on in my neighborhood 
was being able to look up at my father. My father worked for the post office, United States Post Office, and he worked six days a week. Mm. Um, and I also grew up in a neighborhood where we had a lot of village dads. So I can think of four to five dads who lived within two blocks of me who were also shining examples of black manhood and black fatherhood. And while none of these men, including my dad, were perfect, you know, they provided me with the resilience um, to overcome. All of the dads were married. All of the dads that I had, older men that I had relationship with in my neighborhood were black fathers who were married and committed, you know, to their children. And so, you know, I have a very um, unique fatherhood journey. And that's not to say that there weren't times when me and my dad weren't necessarily on the same page or times when... I know one of the things that I had to reconcile was because my dad worked so much, he never came to see me play sports. Mm -hmm. So I was an avid baseball player, I wrestled in high school. And so for me, I kind of had a chip on my shoulder because my dad was always at work. And so those, that was one of the things that I had to kind of reconcile in my own um, you know, journey toward manhood and fatherhood. Mm, that's crazy. I got to bring you back because that's one of the other projects that we are launching this year, which is going to be another podcast. I've been wanting to do it for a while, um, but now that I got this one a little under control, I think I'm ready to kind of begin to work on that one, but I'm a little uh, timid about launching it because I think this thing is just going to take off and it's going gonna, it's gonna to mm. pull my attention. But the uh, podcast is going to be called Sideline Dad. And the reason that um, we're going to create this is a lot about what you just talked about, your dad not being at your games because what, you know, having a son in AAU basketball and in sports, you know, like none of my other kids were, you know, he started in soccer, then he um, got into Taekwondo, he got his black belt in Taekwondo, and then he jumped into basketball. So our life for the last four, uh, for the last at least 12 years has been about nurturing him in this space. As a result of that, we've seen a lot on the sidelines. We've seen parents, we've seen particularly dads, we've seen how dads respond, how they try to vicariously live through their children, um, how they, you know, um, discipline their children, how they, you know, all of those things. Um, and it's not just, and we call it sideline dads, you know, and I want to lean a little bit on sports. But as I think about that notion of sideline dad, uh, we are all sideline dads when it comes to our children, when we are in spaces of trying to provide for our kids. And so whether or not our kids mm -hmm. are in um, athletics, um, what if they're an honor student? You know, what if they are proficient in band and entertainment? You know, what if they are playing, you know, soccer or chess or the debate team, any of those kinds of things demand focus from their parents. And oftentimes when I listen and talk to children who are in anything that they're engaged in, in an extracurricular activity, it is uh, extremely important for them that their parents are in full view and they don't care what kind of relationship you're in. They don't care that you're working. They don't, any, none of that stuff matters. And I think it's just an important thing to kind of talk about, you know, in all of his ways that you can talk about it in order to kind of help parents understand um, how to still be great parents, regardless of what you think your family mission is. And so mm -hmm. thanks for that. Um, Baltimore, I just want to stop on that for a little bit because I just 
not too long ago finished watching Dave Chappelle's Dreamer. And mm-hmm. Dave Chappelle was talking about DC. And he was talking about um, Chris Rock. And he was saying that when Chris Rock did his response um, show, that show was in Baltimore. And he said mm-hmm. that, <laughs> and Dave Chappelle was like, he said, <laughs> I know y'all know DC. He said, but Baltimore is a different place. Like when you hear people talk about Baltimore, and you and I, I spent time in Baltimore with you. We were there during the um, Freddie Gray um, incident and things that were going on there. Um, Baltimore also, you know, has the arguably um, most liked and best um, drama series on cable TV ever. Um, the Wire is debatable. People, <laughs> right. you know, talk about that particular series. But Baltimore has always seemed to be within that space of really talking about, you know, what ills our community in many ways. And a lot of it is specifically focused on black men. Talk about that a little bit. So, you know, I'm a, I'm a native son of, of Baltimore. Grew up on the west side. I would not be the man and the person that I am now. And I had I grown up in any other city, and although Baltimore is known for the wire, the corner, homicide, the twelve o'clock boys, Kenny, have you seen the twelve o'clock no, boys? I have not. Put the, write that down. You gotta <laughs> check out the twelve o'clock boys. These kind of docudramas. Um, Baltimore is a is a small metropolitan city. You know, most people who've never been, you know, think about Baltimore within the context of cities like in Atlanta or Chicago or Detroit, but Baltimore is a relatively small city. But one of, one of the things that um, I am always struck by is that um, in terms of the work that we do, the work in terms of um, figuring out ways to increase uh, the life expectancy or the life chances of, of young black men and, and figuring out ways to strengthen families and, and, and reclaim communities, Baltimore has some of the strongest men and women in the country that are working at some of these intractable, sometimes seemingly intractable problems. But I don't think that I don't think that oftentimes Baltimore gets recognized for its resilience Mm. and its ability to um, to problem solve. I think it's often overshadowed by many of the negative things that have gone on. And so, you know, got a lot of love for the city. consistently am, am working uh, with others to, to, to do my part. Although I currently live in, in Washington, D.C., always involved in, in, in projects, uh, involved mainly focused on black men and boys. But Baltimore is, a, is an amazing city. Um, and then when you look at from a grassroots standpoint, Baltimore has some of the boldest, brightest, most innovative grassroots organizations in the country mm-hmm. that 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 by far you just won't find in many cities mm-hmm. what i do also know about you as we talk about baltimore is academics has always since i've known you has been extremely important to you and you know being inspired to write is one thing but being inspired to be more knowledgeable right is something different what inspired you to like really kind of dig into the academic side of your work and to make sure that that 
piece of who you are is where you demand it to be? Interesting question. And so, you know, um, I would be considered an older doc student. I, I'll be, I'm 55. Um, I didn't need to go back and get a doctorate degree because I've always already had a, you know, 25, 30 year history of doing really serious work on multiple levels. Um, but I was bored. I was, I was bored on one level and frustrated on another level because I thought from a, um, from a research standpoint, I, I just didn't think that the kinds of narratives about black fathers were being accurate, accurately, um, you know, depicted. And so for me, it was initially, I was going to look more specifically at black fathers and sons. But when I started to comb through the archives and started interrogating the data, I, I began to be just really overwhelmed by, you know, still many of these narratives are depicting black fathers as deadbeat, disconnected, uh, emotionally absent, um, flat out dangerous. Or then I start, I would read studies where there would always be a line in the study where they would talk about how difficult it was to recruit, you know, black fathers uh, to um, participate in a, in a research study about fathers and families. And so for me, um, when, I, when, I, when I really dove into the research and figured out that there was a huge research gap, and a research gap is simply, Kenny, when there's just a, when the research is, is scant, there's just a limited amount of research on a particular subject, you know, that, that is a researcher's dream that you can pick an area of research where there's not a lot of um, historical data or recent data. And I was absolutely blown away how little, how little research there was on fathers raising daughters, fathers of any color, not just black fathers or Latino fathers, but just in general, there was very little research on fathers and daughters. And as a father of two daughters, I thought it, it was time for us to um, uplift these narratives about that sacred relationship between fathers um, and daughters. And, and, it, and it was difficult uh, because of the limited amount of research, but I was able to connect with some really, really dope folks across the country who kind of helped um, me formally and informally, you know, shape my ideas, help me shape my you know, research agenda. I think there, on, on another note, I think there's some amazing black researchers across the country who most people don't know about. I mean, you look at a Dr. Waldo Johnson, you know, Kenny, who I know you know at the University of Chicago. You look at um, Patrice Lemons at Baylor. You look at Armand Perry, who's part of the the Moynihan Institute. You look at Dr. Jeffrey Shears, and I could I could just give you just a laundry list of black academicians who are just doing research mainly in the fatherhood space that are that are that are doing um, some amazing work that most people don't know about. And so I was really inspired one by the fact that I have two daughters, and both of my daughters were raised somewhat differently. My oldest daughter, I was that non-residential or non-custodial black father, and I was co-parenting. 
And so my relationship with my oldest daughter was fundamentally different than a relationship with my youngest daughter, who I see every day, um, who I live with, who's lived with me, who's currently in college now. And so when I looked at sort of the duality between my relationships with both my youngest daughter and my oldest daughter, that really made me, again, zero in on my research agenda, which was looking at the impact that non-residential non Black fathers have on the social and emotional development of their daughters. Mm -hmm. As you were doing your dissertation, what um, stood out for you as an aha moment or an epiphany moment or something that you was like, whoa, I didn't know that? Wow. So, um, you know, there were there were several. One has already indicated um, um, the, the fact that the research on black fathers raising daughters was so fundamentally limited. Um, there was a sister at the University of Michigan, Dr. Johnson, who did a major dissertation back in uh, 2010, where she interviewed um, black women in college to get a better understanding of the impact that their, that their fathers had on their um, social and emotional development and their, um, their, their uh, academic development, if you will. And so that was, that was probably the first major dissertation that I read and it was really enlightening because she was interviewing college age black women to kind of get a better understanding on the daddy daughter dynamic. Um, one of the other major things, Kenny, is when I did my study, I did a really unique study. I did a, and I'm gonna make it real simple for folks. I did a qualitative narrative study. So I did a qualitative narrative study. I did dyads. I interviewed dads and daughters, but I interviewed them separately because I wanted to get a better understanding from the dad's perspective. What was it like being a dad of a daughter and y'all didn't live in the same household? Mm -hmm. You know, what, what was your parenting strategy? How did you communicate with your daughter? What were some of the most important conversations you had with your daughter? And then the same thing with the daughters. What was it like being raised by a dad who didn't live in the, in the same household with you? What was it like when you had your weekends with your dad? What were some of the most important conversations? And some of the findings that came out were very unique. So I also interviewed Kenny, the daughters in my sample size the youngest daughter was 18 years of age. The oldest daughter was 46. So I had a very diverse sample size in terms of age, educational experience. Um, and one of the unique findings was that overwhelmingly the daughter said, and I think you'll, you can identify with this, Kenny, because you have, you have daughters of, of different ages. One of the unique findings was that overwhelmingly the daughters felt like they needed their dads more in adulthood mm -hmm. than they needed them when they were younger. They needed them when they were younger because in some of the dads, one dad had been incarcerated. One dad had had some challenges with substance abuse. A couple of the dads had by their own admission had been, uh, had been absent emotionally because of the challenges, the co-parenting challenges. But overwhelmingly, the daughter said, even though I'm 18, or I'm 25, or I'm 40, I need my dad. Mm -hmm. So that was an aha moment. Because we tend to think when they reach adulthood, they, they don't really need us, that we old, and that we don't have no value, that, 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 our, that our value 
as, as dads kind of minimizes in terms of having those conversations. The, uh, two other things super quickly. One of the other major findings was that, interestingly enough, on the question of um, talking to your daughter about sex, intimacy, and relationships, the dads felt like I knocked it out the park. Mm -hmm. I was on point. I gave my daughter everything she needed. But when I interviewed the, when I interviewed the daughters, the daughters was like, no, nah, that dude was just like, if you, you know, just the daughters felt like they were inadequately prepared mm -hmm. for sex, relationships, and intimacy. So again, you know, from a, from the standpoint of training and working with dads, um, my study provides some a preliminary glimpse into this notion. And then there's some other research about fathers talking to their daughter about sex. That's, that's something that we got to drill down, Kenny, with these younger fathers okay. who have daughters. We got to make sure, make sure, and I would even venture to say that we got to create language for dads to be able to have this very difficult conversation with their daughters about sex, intimacy, and relationship. That was a major finding. And I'll just, I'll just give you one more. Um, cultural pride. Most of the daughters talked about um, those early lessons with their dad, their dads taking them to museums, reading books about black history and culture, having conversations with them about race, really prepared these women as they got older um, and entered the workforce and had to, you know, butt, butt up against, you know, issues like racism and white supremacy. The daughters talked about um, their dads instilling high levels of cultural pride in them at a very young age. And I thought that that, again, was a very, very, very unique finding that I don't think you hear a lot about. You know, it's interesting listening to you talk about all, I mean, I mean you know, oftentimes when I'm listening to people, particularly folks like yourself, I'm, we still learning. Like as seasoned as we think we are and as much as we think we know about parenting and our kids, you know, we, we, miss, the, we miss the target sometimes. Um, mm -hmm. And sometimes when you miss that target, you can't go back and redo that shot. Like you got to figure out, you know, how to repair whatever damage was created by missing that shot. Um, but still yeah. be there present. But what it um, draws me into is this whole notion of non-resident, right? And so we just created a paper to which we're going to have a forum not too long from now um, about mm -hmm. this report that we did, particularly in Atlanta, and more specifically with Black dads who are non-resident. And I've been having this conversation lately with people as it relates to my own fatherhood and my own children. And so my daughter and I, my youngest daughter, who, you know, we've been, you know, linked by the hip, you know, since birth all the way up. Um, you know, unfortunately, uh, you know, about two years after she was born, her mother and I, you know, broke up. Now we were parents as such that we, even though our relationship wasn't working, we understood that we needed to be in relationship to co-parent our daughter. Mm -hmm. But there's this thing that happens, David, when you're a non-resident that people don't think about a lot, no matter how great. Now, a lot of people, when they talk about non-resident dads, they always talk about the worst things as a result of being non-resident. Right. They don't talk about the dads who are dads and moms together who are full in. They're full in, but, that they, but they don't live together. 
And so yeah. me and my daughter was having a conversation one day and I said, you know, I said, do you know that there are certain things about you that I don't know that I will never know that, but it's part of, you know, what I feel is missing in our relationship. And she goes like, what? And I said, do you know that I don't know what it feels like to wake up in the morning and see you standing in the refrigerator door? I was like, do you know that I don't know what it's like for you to come home, you know, as an adult having a bad day? I was like, do you know that I don't know what it what you feel like, like when you've been in relationships and they went awry and you broke up and and you didn't have that. Con- I said, I have always been informed by those things. Mm-hmm. I've never been in the midst of it. And now that she is having her first child or had her first child. I have experienced that more during her pregnancy than ever throughout her life, where mm. I would be informed by the baby mm. kicking. I would be informed by what's happening when she goes to the doctor. I would be informed about her not feeling well. But I didn't experience mm. any of that. And I was like, for a dad who's all in, like myself, who don't have the ability to experience and be involved, that's a missing component. Now, you may not think about it because you're not thinking about it, but I'm certainly thinking about it when I'm being informed that that's something that I'm hearing that I should be involved in, but it is of no one's fault. It is not of my fault. It is not of your fault. It's not of your mom's fault. It is just the reality of non-resident. And we have to kind of mm-hmm. prepare. I had a conversation with a bunch of men not too long ago, and I was talking yeah. to them about, listen, dudes, I was like, this, this, this parenting thing is, is, is something else. And I said, you can be the best dad in the best relationship <laughs> with the best connection with the mother of the child, all of those things, and still be missing. And I said, and it is of no one's fault other than being non-resident. And you have to be prepared for that. And you always have to make sure yeah. that you don't, um, you know, cause issues as a result of that particular issue that is as a result of non-resident, not your interaction or involvement with your child. I've been leaning on that. That's just, you know, and that, again, to your point about what should we be talking about young parents about? It is some of those kind of intimate elements of things that we experience and that we know about parenting that we need to elevate in the conversation. And Kenny, if I, if I can add, you know, quickly to what you just said, and then what what happens to a lot of non-residential dads, um, and this was reflected in both my dissertation in terms of the what, what came out from interviews, but there's also some existing qualitative research a lot of non-residential dads, because they are all in, but they're informed and they're kind of like on the outside, creates uh, a whole set of other challenges like depression, mm. alcoholism, suicide. Because you may know that your child is struggling and you because you're not necessarily there, there, mm-hmm. you don't always know all of the nuances and, and you're not necessarily experiencing all of it. That it, that it creates um, high levels of depression, anxiety, uh, alcoholism, and even suicide. Mm-hmm. Among, because when you all in, you all in. Right. And, and you only, when you all in, you only want to increase the time you spend with your child. Mm-hmm. You know, you want to be, you want to be 
not just informed, but you want to experience every and all things that, you know, your, your son or daughter is experiencing. And a lot of times, a lot, a lot of dads talked about that. A lot of times, you know, they would find out something. They were informed about something that their daughter might have went through a year right. later. And they had a great relationship with their daughter. Mm -hmm. Great relationship with mom. But they, like you said, they were still informed about things. Right. Yeah. So that's a, you know, <laughs> a conversation that we got to have um, more of. One of the other experiences that you and I have had and you, you know, brought me into this space as well. And I'm extremely grateful for it because it has enriched my life in ways that, you know, I could not quantify. Um, and that is Africa, going to Africa. When you look at your journey post the first time you went to Africa, how has it changed who you are as opposed to pre going to Africa? Great question. So um, I, I would I would say that I was always pretty learned in terms of Africa as a continent because I've been heavily involved in rites of passage programming for boys and a critical component of that is African history and culture. But it wasn't like going to the motherland, no matter what book you read or, you know, I was I was a I was a big fan of National Geographic magazines as a little boy. Um, it has been, Kenny, one of the most rewarding experiences of my life. And I'm, and I'm, and I'm pretty clear that as I move into my twilight years, um, as I get older, that I'm, that I know for, for certain that I want to establish residency somewhere on the continent, even if it's six months in a country over, you know, in Africa and then six months here. For a number of reasons. One, like last summer, was it last? Yeah, last summer, 2022, as part of a Fulbright project, um, I did a Fulbright curriculum writing project. I lived at the University of Ghana for six weeks. I haven't felt that relaxed in, since I was probably a little boy. <laughs> because, and you know this, man, it, it just, um, once you get off that plane, man, you know that you're home. You feel very peaceful. And even though in Ghana, where, where we were, Ghana has its own set of challenges, infrastructure challenges, you know, politics around, you know, things like accepting the IMF bailout. So, so there is no country that's perfect. But, but as a Black American being in Africa, I feel safer in Africa, in the places that I visit in Africa, I felt safer there than I do in any major U.S. city, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. because of you're not worrying about being carjacked, and that and and that doesn't that doesn't say that these things don't necessarily happen in other countries. Um, you're not you're not dealing with issues around racism and white supremacy. Now you might be dealing with issues of class and culture, being a Black American, being an African, not necessarily understanding all of the cultural nuances. But for me, man, it, it, it's been, you know, even downright therapeutic for me mentally. Mm -hmm. um, a couple months ago, I was in South Africa, first trip to South Africa. And I really struggled going to South Africa, given the unique history of apartheid. But I had an amazing time presenting my research at the University of Cape Town, 
um, um, uh, University of Witts in um, Johannesburg and University of South Africa in Pretoria and found that there is a tremendous uh, interest mm -hmm. in the fatherhood work that we're doing in the U.S. because they're just starting to look um, more seriously at the challenges that fathers have. For example, this, this may blow you away, Kenny. In South Africa, um, unemployment is 52%. Wow. So in, in the States, um, you know, unemployment may hover around six to 8%. And, it, and you know, it fluctuates, you know, depending upon what city you in or what neighborhood you in. But think about that for a second. So when you think about fathers and unemployment, maybe 52%. Wow. So, um, but just have been having some amazing experiences in, in my travels mm. to Africa. Yeah, because it is, um, you know, like your first time going to, we, we experienced Ghana together and then you went to South Africa and I have the same feeling about South Africa. It's kind of like, uh, you know, it's a continent. Right. I can go to some other places. I don't really got to be there. Right. And so having the opportunity last summer um, to go to Kenya um, with Kwame Alexander and Jerry Kraft and Stacey Adams and some other, you know, great folks in the literacy space, which we'll talk about in a few, um, to experience Kenya, which is the east side, is much different than the west side of Africa. They experience history differently. Um, they were more rebellious on the east side. They didn't have the same level of interaction with the colonizers on the east side. They have a different, strong history um, to which they don't give much thought um, to people outside of their spaces and it hasn't impacted their community. Now they have their own issues, like you said, like any place has their own issues. But those kinds of things that we deal with over here are not one of them. And so it's really a kind of cool thing um, to be there, um, to experience that side of Africa, to see that. And, you know, it has only fueled my desire to want to be uh, or to want to go to other uh, regions of Africa to see what those things look like, including, you know, the uh, separated country of, of uh, Egypt. And so I want to go and see what, right. uh, what Egypt looks like. And then, you know, being on safari and going on safari was just a really, really cool thing, you know, as well to kind of be in that interaction and learn, you know, and be a part of the circle of life, right? That was a interesting thing to me, um, to be out in the middle of the Maasai Mara um, at the southern region of the Serengeti, um, in the middle of those things that you and I saw when we watched National Geographic, right? I'm, I'm a big cat person, so I watch predators. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, I know mm -hmm. what they can do. And so, right. <laughs> so when you out there in the middle of that, in a Jeep with no windows, no door. With no windows, no bars. Right, no you're trying yeah. to understand from an American perspective, like, wait a minute, we going where? Like were you getting ready to go up on a roller coaster with no bar on me? Like, like what, what, what's supposed to happen mm -hmm. here? And nothing happens. It takes you a minute to understand that the way we've been conditioned is to think that anything that we designate as fearful should be captured, which is why we have mm -hmm. zoos, right? And why we have jails and why there's always a push to project this notion 
that things are dangerous and should be feared. And the only yeah, way yeah. to deal with that is to incarcerate them in one way mm -hmm, or mm -hmm. another. But when you're in Kenya, you understand that what the circle of life really offers us is an understanding that as long as you are respectful of things that don't look like you and don't show yourself dangerous, then things will respect mm -hmm. you in that way. Yeah, yeah. Right? And so a pride, and literally, David, we're sitting in a Jeep, and I counted them, walked by the front of, about 15 feet in front of our Jeep walked in front of us. A pride of about mm -hmm. 27 lions, I counted them. And not one of them ever showed any, like, fear of these people sitting there looking at them. They just went on about their business. And I was like, what would life be like in this country if we just simply weren't fearful of others mm. or we didn't show ourselves yeah. dangerous, you know, to others? Mm. That that is to me to keep up. That was what I learned when I went to Kenya. And so mm. that I would have never learned in um, Ghana because that's not what Ghana is. Ghana is steeped in history of slavery um, and all of those things. So that's what you get, that emotional kind of understanding of what happened to our people on the continent coming over here, which is very different from the other side. But the reason I bring that up is because, you know, one of the similar experiences that I had over there was being in the village with these kids. Um, and being in those classrooms and reading books and not so much mm. reading books, but reading my own book. Right. Yes, yes. <laughs> and that would have never occurred for me, occurred for me if you never, if you never inspired me to write my own narratives, to, to think about that, David. We're in, we're in the motherland, we're in Africa, we're working with our children, and we are reading to them from our own narrative, we're not mm -hmm. reading yeah. from someone else's narrative. What inspired you to really kind of start thinking about this whole notion that particularly black men and fathers aren't central in our children's book narratives? You know, so when my children were younger, and I think particularly my two youngest children had very unique experiences attending African-centered schools. So all of the books that they read, all of the, all of the assignments, everything that they had to participate in when they were younger, because they went mainly K-8 to African-centered schools, they really had a very different uh, educational experience with a heavy focus on cultural pride, connecting to the motherland, connecting to black history and definitely connecting to books. But outside of that, you know, when my children were younger, unless you went to a black bookstore, um, you know, like a everyone's place at the time and some of the other black bookstores across the country, um, you know, you weren't gonna find a lot of titles written by black authors, particularly in, in the larger box stores like Barnes and Nobles or books. Books a Million and some of the other major um, bookstores. And so for me, it was, I've always been the guy, particularly in my adult life, trying to figure out how we show up. And um, from a book perspective, I felt like too many of the 
children's books or YA, young adult, middle high school readers, um, depicted what I call like black drama, like the lead characters getting shot mm -hmm. or the boy is growing up in the worst neighborhood in Brooklyn and he gets arrested. And I just think, that, I just thought that those narratives were mostly deficit based and limited. And although that may be the story of some young people, that ain't the story of most young people, mm. right? And so I just became very intrigued about um, being a black male author. You just didn't really see and hear a lot about black males writing for younger children. Mm. Even, even today, even with all of the amazing work of Kwame Alexander, Jerry Craft, you know, a Derek Barnes and some of the other, you know, prolific black male writers, you still don't see a lot of black and brown writers who are writing for younger children, mm -hmm. right? Many of them, many of the, many of uh, Jason, Jason Reynolds, you don't see a lot of black men writing for younger children. Um, most of the books that are produced in this country are written by white women, right? And so I felt like it was, it was beyond time that we begin to write uh, very affirming children's books that uplifted black children that provided black children with a, with a voice and that also um, centered the black father in these narratives. Because oftentimes, even in the children's books, the, the father, black fathers were not represented. So you will find in my children's books that the black father plays a dominant role mm -hmm. Uh, in in the in the in the children's books, although he may not be the central character, he is a loving human being, an affirming human being who is guiding his family. And so I thought that that was a was a really uh, critically important piece to add to sort of the depth and breadth of children's literature. I wanted to make sure that Kenny Braswell's experience of being a black father raising children is represented in children's books. I wanted to make sure that my experience as a black father who would read to my children, my children would be mad <laughs> if I didn't read to them at mm -hmm. night. Like I could come in exhausted, but we got to do a book after bath time, mm -hmm. right? And that's the experience of many black fathers. Story time at night. Uh, some families are even doing a story before breakfast, before the child is going to school, because the child wants a book. Mm -hmm. And so I just thought that it's really important that we be able to create those books that the next generation of dads are doing story time with their children. Yeah. So what have you noticed with respect to response from children when they read your book? So um, I was just in Detroit first week of December. And I go to Detroit every year. Uh, uh, Detroit Public Schools buys a bunch of books, and they just let me run wild in the eight mile, right? So I'm, I'm in the rental car, Kenny. I'm, I'm blasting Eminem, you know. I'm, I'm just rolling through eight mile in Detroit. Shout out to Detroit Public Schools, and they just they assigned me to. Uh, this year it was three schools. Last year it was four schools. I mean, it's like Jay Z's. It's like Jay Z's in the building, man. Mm -hmm. The the love that I get from children and the children are like, so I get to keep this book and you're gonna sign it for me? Um, just the love that I get and the, the intellectual 
curiosity that sparked. Well, well, what made you write the book? Um, 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 how did you come up with the characters? Did you did you draw the characters? You know, I'm, I'm not <laughs> always tell, I'm not, I'm not that talented. I don't do any artwork, but but the relationship that I have with my um, illustrator is like a song and dance, right? I I come up with the initial ideas, I shoot them to him, he sends them back to me, sketched out, and then if I like them and approve them, you know, we add color. But like um, the response that I get from children, the response that I get from black teachers is absolutely, you know, overwhelming. Um, and I'm headed to uh, New York City in, uh, in a couple of weeks. I'm doing a major event in New York City and just super excited about, about this project that I'm doing in New York. But, but it, 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 it's the thing, Kenny, that um, that's my passion, mm. writing these children's books. I just finished a new children's book that will be out probably in March. The book is called Charlie Drew and His Missing, Missing Stethoscope. Um, the lead character is named after Charles Drew, the famous African-American surgeon. So, but this little boy is nine years old. He's a genius. Do you remember Doogie Howser? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So this little boy is nine years old. He attends Howard University Medical School. He's a nine-year-old genius. He's in medical school at nine. And he loses his $400 stethoscope. And he's struggling with this moral dilemma. How do I either buy another stethoscope or find another one? Because if I tell my parents, they're going to be upset because he's always losing stuff. Mm -hmm. So that's a, that's, a, <laughs> that's a piece that will be out soon. And then I'm currently working on, uh, which is probably, I, I consider this to be probably the one of the biggest projects of my life next to writing my dissertation. I'm doing a really unique children's book about the life and legacy of Kwame Nkrumah. Nkrumah was the first president of Ghana. He became president in 1956. I got an opportunity to hang out with his daughter, Samaya, over the summer, last summer when I was in Ghana. And the goal of the book is twofold, Kenny. One, to introduce um, Black American children to the life and legacy of Nkrumah. A lot of people don't know Nkrumah was educated in the U.S. He went to Lincoln University. He even pledged Phi Beta Sigma. <laughs> a lot of people, a lot of adults don't realize that um, if it wasn't for um, Nkrumah coming to the U.S. and going to the great HBCU Lincoln University, which already kind of helped shape his political theory and his ideas, those are the things that made him go back to Ghana and, and become, you know, the inaugural president in 56. So one is to educate. Um, two, there's only been one, one children's book in the U.S. written about Nkrumah, and that was written by a brother who I had a chance to meet. He's become an ancestor. That's Eusini Perkins in, um, in Chicago. There are a couple of children's books, children's books uh, written about Nkrumah in Ghana, but the book that I'm doing will be in English and in Tweet. Mm -hmm. And the goal is I'm going to be launching a GoFundMe probably in March 
Cause man, we're gonna go to Ghana, man. We we gonna be like, uh, we just gonna get a rickety bus. <laughs> we gonna ride around and we gonna just jump out in villages and sign books. And I know Kenny, you got your graphic novel. You know, we gonna we gonna just we just, we just gonna start rolling up the cats in villages. Like, who are these right, people? right, right. Jumping with book bags of books, signing books. So super, super excited about yeah, that. Yeah, I'm waiting for you, bro. I ain't going till you going. I've already decided that I'm just going to hold back and kind of wait because I want to make sure that when we go in there, that we go in there with a bang. I mean, they're already knocking my door down about this this graphic novel because it is centered, you know, in um, Congo mm-hmm. Village. Yeah. And Queen Mother is just like, she she can't wait. And I'm like, nah, it's like, we we going as a, we coming in there as a package. You coming as a we coming unit. as a package. Dream team. <laughs> and so, because I'm also working on a book that I was inspired to write, you know, when you talk about the GoFundMe and, you know, the investment that a lot of people don't kind of understand, like this graphic novel, um, you know, when I wrote it and I started writing this thing in 2018, and I just put it out there. So it's been five years. So this book wasn't like I've started writing it last year. This was five years in the making. But to your point about the illustration thing, it took me almost two and a half years to complete the illustration of that book. Yeah. I had to pay for it out of my pocket, right? And mm-hmm. so I had to, I was on the layaway plan. <laughs> my brother, yeah, let's do these, these five pages this week and then I'll come back and holler at you next week and we can get the next one. And it got done. And so, you know, and people say, well, why don't you have a published graphic novels are in today? It's like, you know, first of all, I hit it off to a couple of people and they really wasn't feeling it. But I also know that you got to send it to more than a couple of people. But there was something yeah. about this that is kind of like, nah, I don't want it to go through that process. Like, I really want this thing to come from here and to go straight in. But the book that I was inspired to write, David, is when we was in Nairobi, I was in the bookstore when um, Kwame and, and, and Jerry was doing their book signing and I was in the bookstore looking around. I was like, oh man, I'm in Africa, I'm in Kenya. I should be able to find a whole bunch of black books about black people over here. It's not the case. It's not the case. Mm-hmm. And then I hit, yeah, I hit this religious shelf with all of these religious books. And I was like, oh man, I should be able to find some books, you know, that have black characters, you know, on biblical times. Two big, huge shelves, not one book with a black character on the cover other only animals and white folks was on there. And I'm like, wait a minute, I'm in Nairobi, Kenya in Africa, and I can't find a book of biblical references. And so when I came back, I was uh, charged with thinking about how to write a um, chapter book. And I don't know, it's kind of like in between a chapter book and a picture book, but it's kind of more chapter, Mm -hmm. chapter Mm -hmm. S book. And what I did is, you know, took some time going through the Bible and pulling out any references in the Bible that are even either African based or geographically in Africa based. And so I identified 12 things in the Bible that are either people who are Africans or something significantly that has that happened in Africa. And I'll just mm, say one okay. as a, for instance, like Zipporah. Zipporah was Moses, Moses' wife, and she was from Cush. Mm-hmm. She was African. Her family was African. And then when you begin to start looking at the research, what you then find out 
is that when Pharaoh banished Moses from Egypt, he was banished into what they were calling the dark lands. And the dark lands was Africa, right? And they right. thought that they were banishing him to a place that he would be ostracized and he wasn't, he was actually um, embraced when he went mm -hmm. there. So they were surprised to see him when they came back because they thought something bad was gonna happen with them because they banished him to the dark to the dark lands. And so this book is taking these 12 stories and really pulling out and talking mm. about, because I wanna eradicate this whole notion that, you know, Christianity, you know, is a blank, blank man's tradi yeah. uh, tradition. Yeah. No, this is deep in African narrative and it needs to be spoken, you know, in that way. To now the, um, the evolution of it and what people do with it and use it for, which is why Christianity was such a powerful tool in the slave trade, because it was African-based and because Africans believed in it, it was an easy tool to manipulate to get them, which is a whole right. other conversation right. and story, right? And so, but I'm writing in that book, so by the time you and I get ready to go over there, that one will be done too. <laughs> so. nice. I'm ready. I'm ready. I'll be ready. I'll be ready by June, man. We'll, we'll work on. Yeah, that one be we'll ready too. David, we got about four minutes, and I just want to hit this one real quick, only because I think it's important, and we'll probably have to come back with a couple of other brothers to do something in a group style podcast to talk about this, and this whole notion of we started off this show before we got on the mic talking about uh, for you. Um, the loss of two friends. Um, and for me, kind of watching, you know, what has happened with a few people in my circle and other folks uh, from a health perspective. And this whole notion about paying more attention to, particularly for black men, self-care. Uh, why is that so important right now for black men and black fathers to pay attention to this whole notion of self-care? Well, well, black men deserve to die. Uh, the black men deserve to grow old, man. Mm. I actually, man, I just wrote a, I just wrote a, uh, a piece. I just wrote a, uh, like an op-ed. I'll send it to you, man. I'm a, that I'm gonna flip out tomorrow. Um, I've lost so many men, black men, who haven't even reached the ripe age of sixty. Mm. And we're gonna be fathers and grandfathers, right? We gotta spend um, more time focused on our health, our wellness. There's gotta be radical lifestyle changes among black men. We're not invincible. You know, we're, a lot of times we're caught up in this grind culture. You know, the rapper Fifty Cent talked about I'll, 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 what do you say? I'll sleep when I'm, when I'm, when I die or something like that. No, man, we got to move toward getting our eight hours. We got to get whatever exercise we can incorporate, whether swimming, tai chi, yoga. Um, we got to start looking at things like, you know, acupuncture, any, any, any and all things that can help us rest and relax. Just going to a, just going someplace and grabbing a book, mm. um, taking more vacations because um, black men are not supposed to be dying from heart attacks and strokes at 50. Mm. Um, black men are not supposed to be having their, uh, having a foot amputated. One of my really good friends, Robert Jones, was a professor of math. He was a college professor of math, had his foot amputated at 38. Mm. Another guy I grew up with in my neighborhood had his foot amputated. He might've been like 41, 42. All of these things are preventable. But, um, you know, we gotta, we gotta sound the alarm to the brothers, man. You can't, 
we're not invincible, man. And if we want to, if we want to be, if we want to live to be as old as my dad, my dad will be 85 next week. It's got to be radical lifestyle changes in 2024 among black men. Absolutely. Man, thank you so much for that. Um, tell everybody how they can find your works and how they can get in touch with you. So I'm pretty easy um, to reach for children's books. I am davidmiller.com. I am, just like it sounds, I am davidmiller.com uh, for, for any, any and all children's book related stuff or daretobeking.net, daretobeking.net. I'm on Facebook. I'm on Instagram. You change now. U-C-H-A-N-A-N-G-E-N-O-W. You change now. But I'm pretty easy to find. Okay. Man, thank you so much for joining me. I, I, you know, I realized when I was looking back through all of our guests and I saw the last time I had you on with Sean that that particular narrative was about something very specific. And I was like, man, yeah. but I never interviewed them individually about the work that they're doing. And so I was like, all right, I got to make that happen at the beginning of this year. And so I got three powerhouses that's coming out. Last week was Dr. Ron Mincy. Um, mm -hmm. And then coming up after you, I got Sean Dove. And so I'm just going to be leaning in to making nice, sure nice. that we elevate these voices and others of our brothers out there. You know, I keep telling people I can't do everybody at once. Um, and I'm not going anywhere. You know, I'm really going to try to create, as Spike Lee would say, a body of work that represents that people can go back and this could be an archival piece where folks really want to hear voices and hear what people were thinking about particular subject matters. Um, so I appreciate you taking the time out um, to do this today and to all of my um, I Am Dad podcast listeners. I appreciate you. I, I appreciate you listening. I appreciate you um, keeping our numbers where our numbers are. We steadily increase um, each and every quarter with respect to subscribers and people who are listening. And I'm thankful um, for all of that. Please share it. Please spread it. Um, please talk about it. Please use it. Um, when you're working with dads and you're working in those spaces and I'm easy to find just like David said, as the young people say, Google me. And so, um, <laughs> and so until next Sunday, as my good friend Art Mitchell and mentor used to always say to me, it's nice to be, it's, it's nice to be, it's, oh my goodness, I done messed up his whole quote. Um, it's nice to be important, but it's much more important to be nice. And so until next Sunday, peace out. Thank you so much for taking the time to spend with us. You've been listening to I Am Dad podcast. We hope that you have been informed, encouraged you to think, or even inspired your heart for the love of dads. The conversation does not end here. Come back and join us next week. Same time, same place. Or you can continue the dialogue on our I Am Dad Facebook page. We also invite you to listen to past episodes, learn more about us, and keep up with special activities by visiting IamDadPodcast.com. That's IamDadPodcast.com. Until next time, I leave you with this reminder of manhood from 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 11. When I was a child, I spoke as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. Because of this reminder, I will always understand that I am dad, period.